Good afternoon. Thank you for uh, joining Anthony Ania, myself, and Dean Horace E. Anderson, Jr., the Dean of Pace, uh, the Elizabeth Haub School of Law at Pace University in White Plains, New York, for our Talking Seniors podcast today. Uh, we're not going to talk seniors today. We're going to talk pandemic and how the pandemic has impacted higher learning. Uh, Dean Anderson has been a professor at the law school since 2004, and his specialty is in intellectual property, privacy, and data protection. And he teaches that at the law school. And additionally, additionally, he is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Law and a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School. Uh, one of the most important traits that uh, Dean Anderson has not only is he brilliant, but he's also very nice. So he's blessed with two very important traits. Thank you, Dean Anderson, for joining us today on this podcast. Thank you, Anthony, for that kind introduction, and I'm um, very happy to be here and get to spend some time with you. Thank you. Thank you. So <clears throat> as everybody knows, the pandemic has affected life in, in a zillion different ways. Uh, as an attorney, uh, we were significantly impacted. We had to basically change how we practice law. Uh, I think without the pandemic, I wouldn't know how to use Zoom or Skype, and I've become quite proficient in both of those. So with respect to the law school, when did this pandemic really start to affect the law school and the students, and how were you able to react to it when it began? Um, so the uh, there are two answers to that question, right? One is, when did we start getting inklings that something was going on that we should pay attention to? Um, and that was sort of a slow build. And then the second was kind of, when did we have to flip the switch, so to speak? Uh, and I would say the slow build started at the university level uh, at the beginning of 2020. So January, February, uh, we had people in the provost's office uh, and also people who were involved in the university's international programs starting to flag that there was something going on uh, with this virus that we needed to pay attention to. Uh, and actually, the provost put together a task force to start meeting. And at first, the meetings didn't have the urgency that they would have later, but to start of, sort of say, uh, what do we need to be thinking about? Um, uh, with the news that we're hearing. The second thing that was going on before we flipped the switch was the university, which had always been uh, looking for uh, online learning platforms, and we had tried a number of them over the years. Um, the university was actually in negotiations uh, with Zoom for uh, a license uh, for a sort of comprehensive uh, license for the institution. And so those two things were percolating. I don't think anybody realized they had very much urgency, um, but they, you know, there was some, some thinking going on uh, at that point. When things really changed was uh, March 11th of that year, which is when we flipped the switch, when we looked at uh, what was going on in New York City and in Westchester County. Uh, and uh, decided that we needed to take a, a pause, at least temporarily, in uh, being on campus 
uh, and uh, switch to remote learning. Now that pause ended up lasting a lot longer than we thought it was going to last. I think we initially thought that in, in two weeks or so, uh, we'd be able to, to figure out a way back. And obviously it, it took much longer than that. But um, we, that, that flip the switch day in March was one where we uh, sent uh, everyone home in terms of faculty and staff, uh, told people to make sure that they brought with them uh, their whatever they needed in order to be able to work from home. Uh, we switched our uh, learning modality from, you know, in person in the classroom, one professor and some number of students to uh, an online platform. And for, for us, it was mainly Zoom because of that license that was being negotiated uh, earlier on in the year. Uh, and pretty much uh, with a couple of days, I would say, over the course of a weekend or a long weekend, uh, we went from our traditional way of doing things to uh, remote, not just remote learning, but remote operations. So everybody who did not have to physically be on the campus um, to do a critical job um, was doing their job from home. I'm sure it impacted students differently. Those that were residing at home continued to reside at home, but what about the students that were on campus and now, you know, as staying in the facilities provided by the school, did they have to leave the school? Uh, they didn't have to leave, although some chose to. Um, you know, I think for each student, it was an individual decision as to whether it made more sense for them to do their courses remotely from a dorm room or uh, or back home. But for those who wanted to um, and needed to stay uh, on campus after we went remote, they were able to stay, but with a, a lot of uh, uh, protocol around how they stayed. So we implemented testing uh, within the dorm and we implemented testing community-wide, but the, the frequency of the testing for each individual who was living in uh, the residence hall uh, was much higher than it was for others in the community. Uh, and they were restricted really in the ability to socialize. Um, they couldn't have any visitors in their rooms. Um, so their, their lives were constrained in some of the same ways that they were for people who were living at home, but we were, were at least able to give them a place to, to be if they didn't have the ability to easily get home. And what, what reaction did you receive from the students? Obviously, you know, you have X number of students uh, there at the school, and now all of a sudden, their modality of learning is being changed. They're not having in-person and they're going to this virtual system. And if they weren't used to it and had never done it before, I'm sure it came as a shock to them. It did, I would say <laughs> not just for the students, but for the faculty as well. I mean, we had um, dabbled for a number of years and I would call it dabbling in online platforms for learning, um, but it had not been our main modality. For the students, I think they actually had, at least the ones who were recently out of college, probably had, many of them had some experience with taking online courses. Uh, but for most of that, that, that year, they had been uh, in the classroom. And so um, they were all used to 
a certain model of being at law school, which was being in the classroom. So the reaction was mixed. I think you had some students who, uh, you know, for them, they they sort of remembered, they, they kind of tapped into uh, whatever they did when they did online courses in college. Uh, for others, it was a huge adjustment. Um, I think particularly for students who had to go back home, um, there was probably that uh, unforeseen adjustment or unexpected adjustment of being back home, right? And then having to do law school while back home and you're back home and whatever home means, dealing with your siblings, dealing with your parents, dealing with grandparents, <laughs> for some of our students, trying to educate their children, um, for those who had school-aged children, all of those pressures were now um, also sit sitting with them as they were sitting in the, the virtual classroom. So I think that that was a big adjustment for, for many and certainly for those who, um, who went back home to do their remote instruction. For the ones who were still in the, um, the residence hall, it wasn't ideal, but at least uh, they had a relatively distraction-free uh, environment to do their their classes in and and you know pretty solid Wi-Fi connectivity as well. That's the other challenge that uh, students faced, and I've, I've got to admit I faced it as well. Going home and being home at the same time as my wife and two sons while they were trying to log in on uh, at home as well. Um, you know that that's that that was a challenge for I think everybody who who went home. Um, when we went remote? Well, I think uh, the law school has always been at the forefront of technology because, again, full disclosure, I graduated from the school when it was Pace University School of Law back in 1985. And even then, the school had internet connection where you could do your research online. You were getting the cases online. So the school has always been at the cutting edge. And I think what's happened with most institutions, including those practicing law day to day, whether it be a large firm or a small firm, is that we are now doing things that we anticipated doing maybe five, 10 years from now. So we were kind of, it was a sink or swim kind of option. You either had to figure out how to do it and, and get it done, or you were going to be in a position where you really couldn't communicate with your clients. Fortunately, I have a tech-savvy daughter attorney who is able to get us on board. But how do you see this impacting higher education in general over time? Do you think more schools, more law schools are going to adapt to a system where there's no students in the class, everybody's doing online learning, and, and families are able to save the expense of dorming, et cetera? Or do you think we're going to be going back to a system where people are dorming, et cetera? So I think um, if, when I take a step back and, and look at uh, what we accomplished, and I think we accomplished a lot, like you said, we, um, we did something that we were thinking we'd be able to do in a few years and we did it in a few days, right? Um, you know, and, well, so we accomplished quite a bit. I think we also um, learned quite a bit about what what we missed during the time that we were all remote. And I think going forward, we would, we'll, we're gonna wanna make sure to the extent we can, and I'll get to that in a moment, we're gonna wanna make sure that we, we bring forward all the things we learned 
and also make sure we bring back all the things we missed. So, you know, one of the things we missed is just basic, and you'll understand this because this is true of any professional environment. You've got a lot of formal things that happen. You got meetings um, for those who are in the courts. You've got appearances and hearings and 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 uh, and trials. Um, you've got closings when you're on the more transactional side. A lot of very formal stuff happens. Then there's a lot of informal stuff that's a really big part of the professional experience. And especially for those who are at the beginning of their careers, it's a very important part of their professional development. So one of the things that we missed, that I missed, was the informal interaction in the hallway after class, before class, running into somebody in the cafeteria. Um, uh, and then that same interaction um, in connection with an event that's going on, a moot, you know, our grand moot court competition or uh, a panel discussion on a particular area of law. So we want to make sure we bring all of that forward. And so to me, that means there's, there's, a, there's always going to be a significant in-person presence to this education because we're training, the way I see it, we're training people to help people. So you got to put people together in order to train them. Exactly. Um, exactly. For, those, for that sort of... Those social skills mm -hmm. are very important. The ability to speak to a client in person, you know, to know the, the questions to ask. And right. you really don't develop those if you're doing things by Zoom. Exactly. You have to see people in person. And again, in our profession, you know, pressing the flesh is important, you know, meeting people. You know, I've made good friends in the 35 years I've practiced law. I haven't seen most of them in a year and a half now right. because we've had no in-person events. And if right. I see somebody, you know, it's a social event or a, a wine tasting, it's on mm -hmm. Zoom. It's yeah. it's okay, but it's not the same. Not it's quite the same. Different. Right. So I agree with you. I, I think there's going to be definitely always the in-person element, but I sense that the online learning part Mm -hmm. can be advantageous for people who like it. Yeah. yeah. So it, there's this uh, issue. Are people able to learn the same way mm -hmm. online as they do in person? Mm -hmm. At least that question has been raised for school kids. Right. Have you seen anything with college students or law school students where their grades have dropped because of the online learning? Not necessarily. I think um, with a lot of the um, impact is going to be individual. Um, and so I can't say we've seen across the board um, that the performance has suffered, but um, there will be students, and I've, I've had to become, I think, smarter than I ever used to be before about different uh, learning styles. Um, and I think we're going to have a whole nother dimension of learning styles to sort of learn about and incorporate into what we do coming out of this pandemic, because I think um, there are people, and I get to see this not just as a professor, but also as a father, right? There are those who can be completely locked in in the sort of interaction that we're having now. Right. Uh, that's my older son. And then there are those who um, will drift when they're sort of having this sort of interaction, or especially when it's a one-to-many reaction and they're one of a num uh, interaction and they're one of a number of of boxes on the screen, it's it's a little bit easier for them to, to drift. 
So I think one of the things that we've got to keep in mind, because we're going to be doing some of this even after we're we're back in person. And I think one of the one of the easy things for me as a um, the dean of a law school uh, in the northeastern United States, uh, snow days are going to be so much easier to deal with yes. um, going forward than they've ever been in the past. So we're definitely going to be using it. And I think we just need to be smart about making sure we continue to do what we've done over the past year and change, which is check in with students to make sure that um, they are getting the most out of this particular medium when this is the medium we're using. My, my, um, I did, you know, I did probably, I adjusted my method a little bit, but I taught contracts this past spring semester. I was still cold calling. I was still making sure that people were connected with what was going on on their screen and tried to minimize the opportunity for people to miss out on what was going on. And that's, you know, the law school classroom, as you know, is, is about that energy you create when there's a little fear <laughs> about being called on, a high level of preparation of the students, and then, you know, a, a passion from the teacher in terms of wanting to bring the students along in their learning. And I think we can do that online, but we just have to be um, as deliberate about it as we tried to be over the past year. See, I was never afraid as a law student to be called on because I knew that the professors would always have the tendency to call the people sitting in the back of the room. <laughs> so what I would do is I would sit in the front of the room, have my notes all open, all the books highlighted. So the professor would say, well, this guy looks like he's prepared. Never called <laughs> Not on gonna him. Not going to call on him. <laughs> it's a great strategy. <laughs> it's a great, great strategy. strategy. Yes. It worked well. It really did. In fact, it worked so well that at the end of my final year in law school, my colleagues, my friends, went all up to the professor and gave her notes, call on Ania, call on Ania. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. So this transition is not really just a transition for the students. It's also for the professors. So now you have professors who have been teaching law 15, 20, 25 years have been doing it a certain way, you know, right. so that everybody has their own style. You have those professors that come in who have that visual interaction with the students and you have the professors that come in, put their head down <laughs> and start talking, you know, with their head down. Right. And that could be quite discomforting to a student on a, on a camera going, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm about to fall asleep. The guy has his head down. Right. How, how do you deal with that from the perspective of being Dean? Mm -hmm. Do you monitor how the, the teacher, the professors are working with the students? Are you able to see how they're handling the classes? Right, so our um, associate dean um, for academic affairs, Jill Gross is the one who is more the, the monitor of that, but we certainly keep an eye on it. Um, you know, students know that they have a line to her or me if there's an issue in a class they're taking, and that's whether it's an in-person class or an online class. And so when we, we hear about issues, we certainly um, respond to them. But I would say, for the most part, as far as I've been able to tell, um, the professors made the most of the transition. And I think that's, I'm going to be frank with you, I think that's the pace way. Um, you know, the, the, the way that we approach our jobs as professors is that we are teachers. So um, we're responsible for doing what we need to do to bring the students' understanding of the law and of being um, a lawyer along. And so what I, what I saw um, is that professors brought, um, number one, who they were to the 
the online environment. And so um, they brought the same energy that by and large they brought to, they bring to the physical classroom. Um, and then I also think that we had professors who took advantage of this medium to be able to do some different things, right? I actually found, I, I've used um, uh, presentation software like PowerPoint in my classes in the past. I've, you know, especially when I'm teaching intellectual property, I'm using video and audio quite a bit in class. Um, I actually found that it was easier to do all of that on Zoom than it was to manage three or four different, um, uh, you know, pieces of apparatus in the classroom to try to um, share some content with my students. So I think, you know, we had professors who did some uh, recorded lecturing, and I did a little bit of this myself, which they posted for students to get some material to them outside of class, and then were able to spend more time in class discussing. Um, so I saw a lot of examples of professors taking advantage of what we, this tool we had to be able to do more rather than kind of come across as, as flat, like you said, the sort of looking down at the notes and all you see is the top of the professor's head. Right. Um, I think we had relatively little of that and more professors using or, or seeking to use. And it was, I'll again, be frank about myself, it was hit or miss. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it was, it was not so good, but I think they were trying and the ability to uh, share your screen and thus sort of show, you know, whatever it is, whether it was visuals or audio or video, um, to everybody at once was great. Breakout rooms were great. Um, and these are all things that were easier to do with this platform than they would have been in the physical classroom. So by and large, I think um, the professors embraced the challenge. And where there was a one-off issue, we were able to hear about it in enough time to, to go and correct it and have a conversation with somebody. As we're coming out of the pandemic now, I'm, I'm sure that you've seen a difference between 2020 and 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to the school itself, right. the teaching process, the learning process. I know you're, the semester is over at this point, and now you've got students studying for the bar exam, mm -hmm. which is coming up on what day in July usually is? Soon, it's, I know it's. It's a, it'll be in about, about six weeks. Six weeks, Yeah. okay. And how are the students, are they taking classes or taking their review courses at Pace Law School right now? Not this summer. They're um, pretty much doing it remotely um, this summer as they did last summer. Um, we, we, last summer we provided for some students who needed it, um, uh, you know, space in the library for, uh, for those students who really needed the Wi-Fi connection to be able to do their courses. But, for the most part, the students are, are doing that remotely. And I think what we've, what we did in the, call it, you know, stage two of the pandemic, when we came back for this past academic year, was um, we, uh, we sort of were in a hybrid operating model where uh, people were sometimes on campus, but in, you know, very, uh, in socially distanced ways and, um, ways that tried to reduce the density of the population on, on any given day. Uh, and then sometimes people were, were remote. And so um, we've sort of continued that into the summer 
um, where we do have some classes going on um, that are uh, hybrid with some students in person and some students um, remote. Um, and, uh, but for the most part, the bar, um, the students who are preparing for the bar are doing their core bar study um, Barbary or, or Themis or whatever it is um, remotely. Um, and then we are doing some of our supplemental bar courses uh, in person at the same time. So kind of as a summary, what are the silver linings for higher education because of the pandemic? What are the pros and what are the cons that we see, for, that you see for the future yeah. for higher education in particular? So I think, um, one of the silver linings is we know that we as uh, i'll call us an industry can reach more people than we thought right and that's because we now know we've got we we now have the skill set which we didn't have 18 months ago by and large um to teach um someone sitting in the same room as us and also to teach someone who is at a distance from us um, and i think that's something we need to remember and keep in our quiver, right? That we can actually reach a lot of people. You know, higher ed was facing before the pandemic, a demographic shift where the number of 18 to 22 year olds was gonna be taking a huge dip within a couple of years. Uh, and so we now know that in serving a shrinking population of, of young adults, we can actually offer um, more options for them, right? So more options, and I'm talking higher ed in general first because the law school situation is going to be a little bit different, um, but we can reach more people um, and that's something we should keep in mind and we can reach them flexibly and that we should keep in mind as well, um, that the we don't have to be tied just to bringing people to one physical space all the time for 100% of our interaction with them. We can meet them halfway, we can meet them where they are, um, and still keeping in mind that the in-person experience is important, also have the flexibility to deliver an education in other ways. Um, the, uh, I'm gonna do, before I talk about law school in general, I'm gonna go sort of the, a little bit more of the cloud <laughs> in that silver lining. Um, one of the things that we, we learned a lot about, and we learned this K through 12, and we also learn this in higher ed. Um, the disparity in access to technology uh, is real and is is concerning. Um, so the, you know, I, I, I joked a little bit earlier about having to share my Wi-Fi with, you know, three other people in my house, but at least we had it, right? Um, we had it and we were in a position to pay for the upgrade to, to make sure that the four of us could do what we needed to do at home. And we also had the equipment that we needed. We've got, we've got more laptops in my house than we have people. Um, so we're, we are relatively privileged when it comes to taking advantage of this new flexibility. And one of the things that we, again, as an industry have to remember going forward is that not everybody is in that position. So if we want to make sure that um, we are equitable in providing access to education. What that's going to mean going forward is equity and access to technology as well, because we're all going to be using it more than we were 18 months, two years ago. I, I think that's a great point. I, I, I can easily envision the day 
where a law student maybe doesn't have to come to class every day or, or three times a week, can show up maybe several days a month, and the school providing that law student the connectivity, the equipment they need, and that being part of the overall package and tuition. You get a Wi-Fi system, you get lap laptops, right. you get a computer monitor. So that may be something in the offing. And also when you talk about access, I mean, it'd be fascinating where you could have students who never come to the law school and they're living in California or different parts of the country. Right. And you know, you're growing the law school in a sense. I mean, they're paying for the courses, they're just not physically there right. and to have that option. Right, so the big, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you at Pace, one of the things you do emphasize is flexibility because you have a part-time program as well. Right, right, exactly. So there's a lot that's possible. Um, the you know one of the things about the uh, law school environment uh, is that we are regulated, so we we have some some. Um, rules both from the ABA and from the New York State Court of Appeals that limit the ability to do distance learning. Um, and those I think will have to evolve for us to really get to the place that you're talking about. One of the, the, one of the things that's, that's an interesting uh, development in, during the pandemic is that while we in legal education were adjusting to the pandemic, um, you know, the world of law practice was also adjusting. So I think that the, one of the most important developments in terms of moving toward that, um, that world that you just described, Anthony, is that the lawyers had to do it too. And so our understanding of what's possible um, when it comes to practicing law has also expanded. And I think that'll help influence what um, changes might uh, come to the rules in the future for law schools because basically we are law schools are regulated by lawyers and judges through the ABA and through the, the Court of Appeals and that population of lawyers and judges really learned a lot about what's possible over the past year and a half as well. That's that's I think where um, another silver lining is we all kind of went through it together Whereas I think so often, at least in, in, in my career, I've seen a bit of a divide between the world of practice and the world of uh, legal education. And I think the fact that we all went through this change together will bring um, the two parts of, of, of uh, you know, lawyer training together um, in a way that'll lead to some change in the way that we're able to deliver the education. It should, it should. I mean, there's been this emphasis about having more members of minorities practicing law. Mm -hmm. But if you have people who can't afford to go to law school, right, and, right. and they're good students and they should be in law school, right. but now they can't afford the dorm room, they mm -hmm. can't afford the, afford the technology, right. this would be a way of kind of equalizing that, saying, right. hey, you don't have to travel from Long Island to Pace every day, right? Right. You could travel there several times a month, right? Stay in your house, and we'll right. give you the equipment. Right. Right. Well, maybe that's for down the road a little bit. Maybe not right away, but right, right. down the and road a little bit. I, I, yeah, down the road a bit. I mean, it's not. I don't think it's going to be happening this year or next year, but I could see that happening within the next five to ten years for sure. Right. Right. So I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the great news that you have at Pace Law School, Elizabeth Howell School of Law at Pace University. 
maybe you want to tell the uh, the audience about the the accolades you just received. Ah, yes. So so we have been named by uh, U.S. News and World Report uh, as the having the number one uh, environmental law program in the country. Um, and uh, the reason I'm particularly proud of that that honor is that. Um, Pace, Pace Law had one of the very first environmental law programs in the country, if not the first. And um, so there's a great history, but um, I would say that our environmental faculty and staff have not rested on their laurels at all, because I think one of the reasons we're able to be in the conversation even about the best environmental law programs in the country um, is that we continue to try to innovate. Um, and, you know, we've got newer programs developing out of our um, environmental law program all the time. We've got environmental justice. Um, we've got um, uh, animal law. We've got food and beverage law. So these are all connected with sort of, uh, you know, the earth and, and protecting the environment we live in, but very specific um, really new sub areas of environmental law have emerged over the past decade, and we've been involved in all of them. So, um, you know, it's, it's great that we were out there first, but now that others want to be in the game as well, it's really good that uh, our faculty is always trying to stay ahead of the curve. It's a monumental accomplishment. When one thinks of all the law schools in the country and the emphasis on the greening of America and you think of all different environmental law programs and you think of the, the major well-known institutions to have a local university here in Westchester in New York City to receive this award is truly special, it really is. And I think it shows to the quality of the work that you're doing at the law school as well. I think you deserve a lot of credit for it as well. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that, Anthony, but uh, I'm, you know, the, the, the passion that our faculty and staff brings to the job makes it so easy for me to, to, to play a leadership role because, as I said, they want to do what's best for our students, for the bar, for the bench, for society. And so I kind of point people in a direction and, and stay out of their way and, and great things happen. So um, thank you, but, but it really is a, a team effort in the purest sense. Well, Dean, thank you very much for joining me today. I think it gives the, my audience a little bit of a sense of what's going on in academia in Westchester and in New York State. And I think it's important for them to understand that, especially at the higher level of colleges, law schools, and university. And uh, I thank you very much. Again, this is Anthony Ania. I've been joined by Dean Horace E. Anderson, Jr., the Dean of the Elizabeth Haub School of Law at Pace University. Uh, I'm with Ania Scanlon and Sirignano, LLP. We are a boutique elder law, wills, trust, and estates firm in White Plains. And again, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon, Dean, and have a great day. Thank you for having me, Anthony. You have a great one as well. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care.